If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We took a little bit of a break for Christmas. I had fun with that. And so I'm very excited to be back in the book of Hebrews. Last time, I gave you guys a pop quiz. Here's a good result for you guys. No one failed. But uh, no pop quizzes came in. So there's that. So for those of you who are dying to know what your grade would be, I have pop quiz part two. So you guys ready? Pull out a piece of paper, write something down. It's going to be a huge, quick question for you guys. Trick question. Who is Jesus? All right. All right, so if you guys were here last time, this was the same question I asked. And it's honestly the best way I think we need to approach this text, um, Hebrews chapter 1, um, verse 5 through 14, because it's kind of addressing the same issue and the same question. Let's go ahead and jump into our text and read. Who is Jesus? Have that in the back of your mind. Let's start in verse, I'm going to start in verse 1. You might not have it on the screen. I'm going to go through verse 2, and then I'll hop to verse 5. So just follow along with me as I read. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. Verse 5. To to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? The word of the Lord. So the main reason why I want us to start this evening asking the question who Jesus is again, because it really is the same thing going on in the first four verses. So if you were here previously, we've looked at Hebrews 1 through 2 and a half, and then also through Hebrews 1 through 4. And so in the first four verses, you have the author of Hebrews writing about who Jesus is. And then in verses 5 through 14, you have God himself pulling out all these Old Testament passages and laying out almost a biblical picture of who Jesus is. And so this is important for a few reasons. First of all, it's another perspective, right? So we're not just seeing the author of Hebrew. We're seeing how he holds all of these various passages of Scripture together. It's a really important thing to say. But also, it's very easy as we talk about, you know, theology. If you guys think of your average theology book, probably really big, lots of words, small print, It's really easy to talk about who Jesus is and to get into all those arguments and as this theoretical, kind of out there conversation. But I think we see here that who Jesus is is very biblical. And even more than that, it's very historical. There's this story and this picture that is being painted for us. So that's why I think as we look through this, we're coming back to that question of who Jesus is and looking at it from another perspective. The second thing is, 
What are angels? That's kind of the question that might pop into your head. Why angels? So if, you're, if you were writing this, you know, in the 21st century, that's not something that comes up a lot, right? So we have in various circles it might, but the question might come up, why talk about angels? Well, who are angels? Angels are spirit servants. You can see that at verse 14, right? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? So they are spirit servants sent out by God to do various things. They are accomplishing tasks. They are doing redemptive works. They are servants of God for purposes. But you have to ask the question, why here? If you think back to what we've been talking about with the book of Hebrews, what's going on is you have Jewish Christians struggling with persecution, right? So the Roman feet are coming down. People are being pulled out of their churches Roman persecution. There's this temptation for those from a Jewish background. If I just slide back in, I can get out. If I just slide back into Judaism, I can remove myself from all of this. And so one of the things that you might not think about is that the Jews thought of their scriptures being given to them by angels. You actually can see that in verse, in chapter 2, verse 2. Look there for a second. It says, since the message declared by angels, what's the message declared by angels? The Old Testament. And Acts 7 to 53 is another example of this. So the Jews thought that their scriptures were given to them by the angels of God. That's, that's one way of the Jews before Christ thought of it. So think about this, this contrast. You have Judaism, angels, big great apps of scripture. And then you have these Christians. Given Who, who do the words come through? Apostles, men. Instead of the glory of the angels, you have the suffering, persecution. You know, there seems to be this contrast, and for the Jewish Christians kind of looking behind their back, they could say, hey, is, is this really what it's all meant up to be? And so the reason why the author of Hebrews has to go here is he's anticipating a move that they're going to have to go through. So he's saying in this passage that what you get from Jesus is greater than what they got from the angels. So that might not be something that we kick around a lot, and I don't think many, many people here are struggling with whether the angels speak more than God or Jesus. But we have the same issues today, right? So we think about most college campuses across the world. What do they think of? Their truth is determined by what they can touch, what they can feel. And so even we as Christians have to wrestle through these issues of how do we present the gospel to people like that. So that's just one example. If you're looking at a main point, here's what I want to give for you guys. I think there will be a main point that can summarize our conversation this evening. It says... Your relationship with Jesus is directly tied to your view of Jesus. Let me say that again. Main point, your relationship with Jesus is directly tied to your view of Jesus. I think we're going to see that in three ways. We're going to see that in worship, submission, and trust. I have two points for us this evening. We're going to look at Jesus, the King. He's going to be all over humanity and over all. And then Jesus, the Savior. And so the front one's going to be heavy. It's going to be more front heavy than the back heavy. So if we get to the end, you're like, what about a second point? We're going to get to that. So Jesus the king. And for this, we're looking at verses 5 through 12. If you look just at the layout of the passage, verse 5 says, for to which of the angels did God ever say? So we're setting up a rhetorical question, right? How do rhetorical questions work? He asks the question. He says, has this ever happened? And then you say, well, no, this hasn't ever been said. So verses 5 through 7 are speaking about the angels, and while verses 8 
through 12 are looking directly at the sun. You guys see that in the text? That's something that we'll get to in a second. So this, there's a word that's given in the first two verses, verses 5 through 7, concerning Jesus against the angels. And the main idea here is that Jesus rules over humanity. Let's look at verse 5 real quick. So he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? If you guys are familiar with this passage, this is Psalm 2-7. We read that this morning, a little bit earlier, right? Psalm 2-7. What's happening in Psalm 2? It's this picture of the nations raging against God. It's a picture of the collective peoples of the earth, and they're raging. They're fighting against God. And what's, what's God's answer? His Davidic king, the one on the throne. And in this, picture, in this context, the son is the son of David, the one whom God makes his covenants with. Who do we see this fulfilled as? Who is David's son, 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 son? Jesus. So there's a sense in which author of Hebrews is very right to say, this has never been said about the angels, but it was said about the son, Jesus. And an important picture to see here too is that in using this verse, the idea of begotten isn't actually birth, but it's the idea of Christ being put on his throne. It's the coronation. It's him, him taking on the authority and the power that is his by right, being the son of God. So it wasn't said to the angels, but it was said to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Let's look at the second part in verse um, 5b or 5-2 or whatever, how you want to say that. This comes from 2 Samuel 7-14. In this context, really important, let me go ahead and read it for us. Uh, and, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What's the context there? 2 Samuel 7 is God's covenant with David. So after David comes, he unites the whole kingdom. He ha he's bringing everything into Jerusalem. He's looking at his great house and he says, you don't have a house. Let me build you a house. And God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. You are going to have someone on your throne forever. And so what he's saying is that to that son always on the throne, I will be to him a father. And he will be to me a son. And so we look at this again. And if you do, do the track, it's David, Solomon, run down the line, go to your Matthew genealogy. Who is it? It's Jesus. So this is an important point to make. If you're trying to think about the, the angels and the, the message, maybe, maybe the angels and what they were doing in the past is greater than what we see in Jesus. No, because God is the father of Christ. And that he is the one on the throne. A few points of interest for us. I think it's really important to go back to what I said at the beginning. That whenever God reveals himself to us. Particularly as father. And when we see Jesus as the son. This isn't some abstract thought, right? What do we see? This is in the entire Old Testament. This is something that's being built for us. So when we, when we come and we see Jesus as the son... We get some picture of that because of David and because of how God treated David like his son and how God is a father. And those things become really, really clear for us in the entire storyline of scripture. One example I'm always shocked of is the fact that when you look at Abraham in his life, what does he say right before, right when God says to Abraham about Isaac, what does he say? Give, sacrifice your son, your only son. Where else do we see that? Not in John 3, 
right? Your only begotten son, the only son of God. So these aren't just abstract thoughts. God is taking all of redemptive history to teach us these things. Not only is he doing that, though, because all of us are intimately related to father-son relationships, right? right? All of us have fathers. All of us have sons. And so even as God is using the Davidic dynasty to show us something of what he would relate like to a son as father, he's also pointing into an experience all of us have, right? All of us having fathers. All of us either being sons or daughters. And us having sons as well. Lord willing. I think this is really important too because if we look at this story in relationship to our lives, you know, father-son relationships or father-daughter relationships are one of the best things in the world, right? You know, just... But many of you guys have great dads. You guys are thinking about a great experience that you have. Now, sadly, that's not the case for everyone, right? It isn't. That's something you have to be conscious of in the world. Not everyone has great father-son relationships. What does a story like this tell us? God loves his son. Right? He loves his son. What did he do with his son for you? He gave up his son for you. His beloved son for you. And so the idea of father-son relationships in our present physical lives might see something that might be touchy or might be something that brings up hard memories, maybe broken expectations or this and that and the other. Or maybe it was all joy. At some point that ends, right? At some point those, those relationships and seasons close. But for even in all of that, we glory in the fact that God teaches us that he is a father who gave up his son that we might be sons and daughters of him. And even that's something that we see in this passage. So even as the Hebrews are suffering, they see a father who loves them as sons and daughters, as he loves his son. That's, verses, that's verse 5 right there. Let's keep talking about a word concerning the angels. So the first word is that, you know, the angels might be sons of God. That's something you hear in Scripture. But Jesus is the son. Here's the second word. And starting in verse 6. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, let the angels say, or let him say, let all the angels worship him. And then the next one in verse 7, he says, um, and of the angels, he says, he'll make angels wince, his ministers of flames of fire. And so at this point, he's talking about um, his, he's talking about the angel's relationship to the sun. So when the sun is being brought into the world, the focus is on how the angels relate to the son that's being brought into the world, right? Well, a quick point for you guys. When it says the world, it's probably referring to Christ's ascension. We see that in Hebrews 2, 5. For it is not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. That world to come right there is that world. So this is a picture of when Christ enters into heaven, resurrected from the dead. It says, let all God's angels worship him. That's the idea there. And then in verse 7, we'll hit that real quick. Um, what it's saying is that it's coming from Psalm 104.4. It's the context of creation. What's happening is, is that what God is saying is that you guys might think these angels are great, but the Son creates angels like he creates everything else. So in the same way as God makes flames of fire or winds, he makes these ministers and these servants. Let's go back to verse 6 real quick. And it says, let God, all God's angels um, worship him, because we're going to stay here for a second. Now, if you are a very curious Bible scholar, and you're all into these footnotes, you actually might look down and see that this verse probably has a footnote. 
It says, all God's angels worship him. It is accompanied with Deuteronomy 36, 43. Here's the problem. Most of your ESVs, that's not really a problem, most of your ESVs probably don't have that exact verse in here. Why? Because ours is, our New Testaments and Old Testaments come from a Hebrew line called the Masoretic Texts, and what this verse is being pulled from is from the Greek translation or the Septuagint. So this isn't that big of a problem. You know what the good thing is? Cliff was walking around the office this week saying, I wish someone would ask me the difference between the Masoretic Texts and the Septuagint. So I'm going to put that on him, and he will answer all of your questions for you. But it basically comes down to what strain uh, of, of tradition we find the scripture in. It really isn't that big of a problem, because what this is being pulled from is just an extended doxology. So instead of it saying, let all God's angels worship him, he talks about the heavens and talks about the sons of God, the nations, and then adds the angels into that. All right. What's the context of this, though? If you flip over to Deuteronomy 32, the context is that um, Moses is reflecting upon all that God has done for them, right? That's what's happened here. All of the great things that you accompany with the Exodus, with God leading his people out of Israel, or out, out of Egypt into Israel. Now, there's a really interesting point to make here because the reason why all of God's angels are told to worship him is quite unique. Let me go ahead and start reading in Deuteronomy 32, 39. It says, See now that I, even I am he. There is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal up. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever... If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the long-haired, hen of, long-haired heads of the enemy. And then here's 32, no, um, 43, sorry. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, if you caught it in there, the reason why the angels and um, all these people are called to worship God is that he saves his people. He saves them mightily. If you saw those things in there, you have swords, bloodshed, battle. It says that rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, O gods, for he avenges the blood of his children. You have this warrior God who's protecting his people. So how does this then come to Christ? In the same way that, that God saved the people of Israel and he preserved them and brought them into the land, in the same way Christ defeats all of our enemies, sin, death, Satan, and he ascending is now in glory, and he preserves his church, he preserves his people. So another interesting point to make here, the Yahweh, the Lord of Deuteronomy 32, who is that associated with? It's Jesus, it's the Christ. Same person, pre-incarnate, and then the Christ our Lord. So this is a really interesting point to make, just because of the fact that in terms of the call for worship, what's the motivation for worship in, in Deuteronomy 32? Your Lord is a conqueror. 
He conquers his enemies. He has defeated sin, death, and the devil. Another point going back to the thing about the angels before we have some application here. The two, in the two things that are quoted, it's becoming very clear that the angels are subordinate or they're under the sun. I think it's very clear there because what's happened? You angels, you worship the sun. This isn't, this isn't the other way around. You are under the sun. You give glory to the sun. Us as Christians, the sun is on high. He is exalted. So the whole point of what was going on in Hebrews 1 is starting to fall apart, right? You guys starting to see that? It's very, you cannot make an argument that in some way the angels are better than Jesus because he's getting worship. He's the one who's doing all of these great things. But I think that there's something for us to walk away with this as well. And I think that a lot of, of Christians today, myself included, we're very tempted to have almost a truncated view of Jesus. We're almost, we have this, this picture. It comes in our Hallmark cards. It comes in our pictures. You know, we, we emphasize God as Father, God as Shepherd. And there's a sense in which a truncated view of Jesus can lead to a diminished form of worship. Think back to that, that logic that's in Deuteronomy 32. And think about how we sometimes talk about Jesus. He is, he's the one who maybe might be just out in the cold, kind of waiting for the opportunity for you just to let him in. Or maybe he's the one that's just sitting there and he's just alone rejected because no one will come to him, no one will turn to him. Think about his work sometimes. We almost sound like, man, we have this great thing, but just no one will turn to him, no one will come to him. What's the Deuteronomy of 32? What's the logic of Deuteronomy 32? This isn't just us waiting for people to open their hearts. Christ is a victorious conquering king. He is the king of the kingdom. He conquers. He is in control of all things. Thus, we worship. Thus, we pay homage to him. He right now is more powerful than all the nations combined. He has power over sin, death, and the enemy. And when the gospel comes to, comes to someone, this isn't just a, hey, this is a good thing you should turn around and, and maybe you should believe in it. You know, maybe, maybe this is something that can help you out. This is the summons of a king who is being gracious and saying, you are in rebellion against me. Come and repent. It's a little bit closer to the fact of our message goes out into the world and this might startle some of us. It's a little bit closer to the fact of Jesus saying, this is my rod, come submit to me or my foot's going to go on your neck. That might shock us, but what's the logic of Hebrews um, 1.13? To sit on my right hand until I make your enemy's footstool for your feet. What's the logic there? If you are not turned to Christ, you are going to be subdued to him. So if you think about this as a mechanism for worship, when all of these glorious things that God has done, what, what, what does Deuteronomy 32 call us to do? God has conquered. He has overcome. We worship. It's something that evokes awe. I wonder sometimes if we have a hard time worshiping because our picture of Jesus isn't awe-provoking. It's not something that calls forth from us worship. And that's exactly what we see in Psalm 2, right? The nations are raging. Kings, be wise. Turn to the Lord. The second part, we start to transition over um, into the second and the middle part of the, of the passage, starting in verse 8. 
Um, this, this idea is that Christ rules from the throne. This is quoting from Psalm 45, 6-7. It's actually a marriage psalm. It's a little interesting point for you. It's a marriage psalm talking about the, the Davidic um, son and the potential bride. But in that passage, it has this beautiful quote, and it says, um, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I think it's pretty clear to say that this picture of the sun transitioning away from the angels, he is seated on a throne, right? It's pretty clear. He rules over all. It's almost a prophetic picture of what's to come, of what the author of Hebrews foresees in Christ's future glory and his kingdom. Here's a few observations for you guys. First of all, Christ alone rules. There's one throne. Who's on it? The sun. It's forever and ever, right? Means that it's not going anywhere. Christ is not going anywhere. You know, this isn't really, it doesn't show a picture of heaven as a democracy, does it? It's not this picture of all these various voices. No, Christ is on the throne. But you know what the glorious thing is? We don't need a democracy because he rules rightly. Everything goes exactly as it's supposed to. Because he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Oh, isn't that a prayer for our leaders? Right? If we could just have leaders that love righteousness and wickedness, not in the way that they define it, right? You know, it's easy to say, my righteousness is just what I care about. Wickedness is what I don't like. No, what, what God deems as righteous and wickedness is how Christ rules. He alone rules and forever. Here's the second thing that's cool about this passage is that you see the father delighting in his son who rules justly. You know that God wants good rulers too? God wants his people to be ruled by good rulers. How do you see that? In verse 9, it says, Therefore God has anointed you. Quick side note. Anointed. Where do we see that with Christ? Who, who is he? He's the anointed one. The Messiah. Right? So there's, there's that picture of anointed with oil. But therefore God has anointed you with oils of gladness. Why? Because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God has anointed you. God delights to pour his oil of gladness on the Son because he rules rightly. In the same way, I think that's why Christians want good rulers. I think it's something that we see here. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit in us producing what the Father wants, what the Son wants. Here's the last thing for you guys. Um, well, one before we hop into some application of this. Love of righteousness leads to joy from God. Let me say that again. Love of righteousness leads to joy from God. I don't think this is something that you just see that can be only hold, held to the sun. Look at verse 9. What does it say? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God has anointed you with oil. I think that mechanism works in, in our hearts, right? You know, gladness the blessing of God in our lives, when we love righteousness, when, when we look at God's law and we say we desire it more than anything else in the world, when that becomes a lens by which we see the world around us, oil of gladness for those who love 
righteousness. You want to be happy? You want to be blessed? Love righteousness. It's right there. I don't think that's something that, if you love righteousness and are pursuing God, gladness. Last point I want to focus on in this little text um, as we think about application for us. Christ rules over all and will rule in his kingdom one day. Might not look like it right now. You know, the nations are raging. There's a lot of things going on. But Christ rules over all. But he presently rules in his church. Christ's kingdom starts in his church. Why? Because the centrality of his word in the church. You know, what do we do? The most important thing that we do during the week, during our week as a church, is the two times that God's word is opened up and God speaks to his people. If you think about the king's commands at the end of Matthew Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Or you see in Matthew 5, whoever laxes the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. What's happening in those passages? That God, Christ, currently rules his church through his word, through his word being opened up, properly explained, and applied to his people. So whenever we come to preaching, this isn't just my jokes, right? I don't have good jokes. I, if you guys ask me good, good jokes, I'm not hoping for like a, com- a comedy career, if, if that is something I need to bank on. I don't tell good jokes. I don't very have very many good opinions, you know. You guys have probably seen me on, on Facebook. I don't have met much of that. And so we're not just up here saying what we think, commenting on things going on. Our job as pastors is to open up God's word and let the king speak to his people. That's what we're doing. We don't play with God's word. We, you guys aren't just, you don't have a bunch of pastors on staff and then have us preach just to keep us busy and feel like we're important doing something going on in the church. Or even in the ministries that we have. I'm, I'm children. What am I doing with children? I'm trying to take God's word and apply it to them. Will isn't just your youth's best friend. Jonathan isn't just playing cute songs. You know, his password is, sorry, is is Colossians 3.16. What does that mean? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Singing songs. Right? He could probably come up here and preach that. What is he doing? The word of the king is going into his people. Even what's happening here, it is the word comes through the pulpit and then it bounces. You guys talk about the word, you preach the word, you pray the word. The ministry of the life of the church becomes the word from the pulpit, bouncing in each each other's lives. So it's reverberating through everything that's happening. So we don't play with God's word. That's why all of us, we open and we explain and we apply. That's what we're doing. The second thing also is that Christ also rules specifically through his word. Hebrews 4.12, that's very familiar. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, right? The word of God among his people. I want us to think about John 10 for a second. John 10, the passage of the shepherds. Who are the sheep in that passage? We're not going to go there. Just think about it. Who are the sheep? What's the one characteristic of the sheep? They hear God's, they hear the voice of the shepherd. Right? Who are we? Those who hear the voice of the shepherd. How do you know whether it's the true shepherd or a false shepherd? He's a stranger because we don't hear his voice. 
So if we are to shepherd the church well, we must make sure that our voice is the same voice as the king and the same voice as the shepherd. And it's our job to speak to the sheep and to help them to obey all of it. The last thing I'm going to say here is that if you look at it, if we are sheep and Christ rules through his word, we have to make sure that we love what Christ loves and we hate what Christ hates. If we're going to be sheep, we have to follow our shepherd. He wants us to love righteousness and hate wickedness. You know what this means? That those who do not love righteousness and those who might desire wickedness, just from the logic of the passage, are not showing themselves to be part of the flock. If this is where everything's going, you know, when, when the curtain closes, it's going to be a kingdom with one ruled by loving righteousness and hating wickedness. This is where everything's going. Then we are preparing for that now by training our hearts to be there. We are conforming ourselves to this. Loving righteousness and hating wickedness. So think about that. Every person right now, because of sanctification, being made holy, is preparing themselves from where they're going to be one day. Either you are going to love righteousness and be with Christ in his kingdom under that, or you're not loving righteousness and you're showing yourself not to be part of the king. It's a hard word, but I think that's the logic of the passage. Let's go to verses 10 through 13. This will, this will be a little bit quicker. Or sorry, verses 10 through 12. This is um, Psalm 102, 25 through 27. It's, it's basically the idea is that Christ rules creation from beginning to end. He has control of it all. What's the picture? Christ began it. He laid the foundation. And then he so easily just takes it up. You know, whoever is going around the house is picking up clothes. I have toddlers doing it all the time. I'm picking up clothes covered in rice and stuff like that because that's how it just sticks to everything and yeah, so as easy as I pick up that garment of clothes, Christ one day is going to wrap it all up. And think about how much we in our sciences put so much on the natural world as something that's stable, right? It's all going to go away. He can pick it up. He laid it down. What's the constant there? Creation begins. Creation ends. He is the same. He is the same. So this is the question for all of us then. Christ rules over all. He rules over humanity. He rules over all of us. He rules now through his church. Let's go back to our pop quiz. As you think about these things and it applies to the life of our church, is this what you think of? These are the pieces that are starting to roll together in your mind. Do you see him as this conquering king who then offers grace to us? Because that's where this passage is heading. Let's look at the second point, which is a lot quicker. Um, Jesus the Savior, which is 13 through 14. Now, this is, this is one of my, oh, I want to talk about this so badly, but i got to save it for later because I'm going to ruin another sermon down the line. This is coming from Psalm 110.1. 110.1. And here's another theme that jumps into the picture is the fact of Christ as priest. So you have Christ as king. That makes sense of him sitting at my right hand, sitting at the right hand of the Father. You have Christ as king. But then you have this picture of Christ as priest. Now, why is that significant? Why this switch? So when the author of Hebrews says, sit in my right hand, why is that important? Because priests don't sit. Right? Priests don't sit. 
Why is it important that Christ sits as a priest? Because priests don't sit. If you have a second, flip over to, to Hebrews 10, 11. Think about this for a second. It says, in every priest, Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. Why? Why do priests have to offer the same sacrifices? One of the most ominous passages of Scripture. Because which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool under his feet. We'll get to it later. I'm not going to ruin a sermon. But you see those amazing ideas? Christ, the priest, sits as king because sacrifice is done. What happens before Christ sits? He ascended. What happened after Christ ascended? He rose from the dead. What happened after Christ rose from the dead? Well, before, sorry. I'll turn back. You guys get it. Before, he died. Why did he die? As a priest. Think about it. Christ, the king, the king of the Hebrew suffering, the king of us, is the priest who laid down his life to save us. It's an amazing picture. And I think this is the contrast that makes the starkness of Christ as the warrior king fit into our hearts. Because if you think about it, the king who offers grace, or the king who conquers is the one who offers grace. The one who says, bow to my, bow to my scepter, as he said earlier, bow to my rod, is the one who first laid down himself for us and offers us grace before that comes. It might sound harsh. We have to remember as human beings, we put to death the Son of God. What does the hymn say? It was my sin, your sin, that held him there. It is only right then that God would judge humanity for that. But before that falls, this, the king offers grace. Even think about how that can sometimes, how, how this whole conversation can restructure how we talk about things typically in the church. Think about grace. Grace can sometimes turn into this almost parental, hey, yeah, I know you did something bad, but God is gracious to you. Versus the king. It's, it's, more, it's more of the, the grace of like Esther when she goes before the king and the king gets out her rod. Why? Because she's not supposed to do that and the sword of judgment's going to fall on her. You know, the grace to us means a lot more when we know that the sword of judgment would be close by for us if it was not for the grace. Think about God's patience. Think about how long that he has been with humanity, even now, pleading with nations to come to him to repent and turn from their sins. Think about the wrath of God, even. Terrible subject, no one likes to talk about it, but the king laid down his life first that we might come to him. So here's our conclusion. Who is Jesus? Let's think about it again. Who is Jesus? What is your temperature of worship of Jesus? Is it marked by a deep awe for who he is and what he rightfully should do to us. And it is marked by a grace that despite everything, grace greater than our sin, 
despite everything, the king is gracious and he's still gracious. And our entire lives can be defined by God's grace. Think about your relationships with people in the church. Think about it in the world. How does your, your call go out to them? Do you present this picture of awe? Do you have a sense of soberness about the, the intimates or how close Christ's judgment is? You know, that the king is coming, but grace is here now. Think about your life. Are you submitted? If you think about the shepherd who rules through his word, are there parts of God's word you almost like to rub around? Are you listening to his voice in all things? Are you growing in that righteousness? I want to end with Psalm 2 where we began. Think about it in every light of everything that we talked about this evening. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. You see that, right? O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Kiss the Christ. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let us pray.